Hey everyone, welcome back to On The DL Podcast. I am Danielle and I have Lucky with me. We are going to be talking with Danique today. She is a Navy veteran and she also is the president of Leashes of Valor, which is a nonprofit for veterans. So we are just going to roll right into it and talk to Danique. Hey everyone. Hey ladies, thanks for having me on. I'm really, really excited to be um joining your awesome podcast. And I really love uh, the mission of what you're accomplishing and the stories you're getting out there as well as resources. So I'm really honored to be here. So let's talk a little bit about your time in service. So you joined, what year did you join? What kind of commands were you in? What did you, what was your job? Tell us a little bit about that. And then we'll get into maybe if you have any experiences that you'd want to share. I um, I joined the Navy in 2002. So I'm one of the people that was um, inspired by 9-11. I was actually a dual citizen, so I'm part German, part American, and I had to give up my German citizenship to in order to join the American military. So I went for boot camp in 2002. My first command ended up being Charleston, South Carolina. Um, we had the, the nuke school there, for any of you Navy people know exactly what that's all about. And so I spent the first three years there. That was the worst command of my life, almost broke me. And from there, I left and went to NCIS School, Protective Services School out of Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Had another run-in on these topics there too. Ended up not finishing that school because of what happened on the gun range. Hurricane Katrina hit, so my orders also got changed. So I ended up not going to Italy, even though my furniture went to Italy. And I ended up getting orders to the John F. Kennedy out of um, Naval Station Mayport, Florida. So my my ship time was exactly three months until they realized I only had a oversea duty screening, not a sea duty screening. So all the injuries that happened in Charleston came back and I got kicked off the ship. I ended up asking to stay within my rate. So I went to Mayport Security and that was another very bad command. So there is what we say I tapped out. I Medical and I basically decided that I was not going to be able to sustain um, working in that kind of environment much longer. The chief that was primarily in charge of my medical team basically said, like, I don't think you're going to make it if I don't basically fail you on this med board. So I got med boarded out of the military in 2007. What was your med board process like? For lack of a better word, was it was it relatively painless? I mean, anybody's on med board. I'm assuming everybody still gets treated like shit. Like all of a sudden you're not useful anymore. Uh, I think mainly we just don't allow people to recover enough. So I got, I chose poorly trying to stay in my rate. For me, I, w- I did not go to a command that was solely there for me to hand out basketballs at MWR and go to my medical appointments. Like I wanted to be a master at arms so bad that I said, I want to stay within my job no matter what it takes. But I ended up having a civilian security officer that was not a big fan of people who are limb due. Um, so I greatly suffered and a lot of my chain of command greatly suffered. I had a master chief that ended up terminating shore duty and going back to sea for his last tour to get away from that man. I had other chiefs retire early. So it's it's a very close-knit group of people from that command that survived that guy together. So I, I've seen men suffer under, you know, what, what you call bureaucratic harassment or whatever. I mean, I've seen literally master chiefs of 26 years in the Navy be completely emasculated by a civilian man. Has, like, the military had no no pull in our own security department in the military base. Um, because which obviously sets you up for a lot of failure depending on what else is going on. Um, You did mention that uh, your first command was your uh, kind of your most trying command. Uh, Can you explain a little bit? I would say the the collection of MST, let's just call it that because it's not even a singular incident, uh, definitely all happened 
in Charleston. It was compounded over three years. Um, and it was, I was a master at arms, which means I was a police officer for those who aren't in the Navy. It's military police. And it was the entire senior leadership. So if you were an E6, E7 and above, they were all involved. Junior lieutenants, everybody was involved. Um, so it didn't allow for any reporting from any aspect. Uh, it also made it that kind of environment where it just fostered other people to start acting like that too. So it was basically just a huge toxic pool of deviant behavior, illegal behavior. I've seen women that had to carry to term children that were caused by rape. I was stationed with women who were forced to basically vacuum and sweep under the security officer's desk while he's sitting at his desk. I've seen women that were forced to breastfeed in his office. Like it was, it was absolutely insane. And it was all able to happen because it's from 2002 to 2005. So realistically, America and the the entire military, obviously, we had a bigger picture in front of us, which was the invasion in Iraq. And we had much bigger things happening. So when anybody did try to go report, and many people did, to medical, to the senior leadership on base, so the command master chief, a lot of people were sent on on IA, so individual augmentee duty. So they're basically sent on deployment if they made waves. People were denied medical treatment. It was absolutely atrocious. So for me, um, I was one of the people that that happened to. I don't think we need to necessarily rehash all the little single things, but it's it's a hostile environment that allows for ugly things to happen. And Charleston really hit every wicket you could try and achieve. Um, can, you, so can you go into what your first experience was like? I mean, was it something that you're, do you want to talk about that? Or I mean, is that something that you want, you don't want to go into detail with? I mean, so one incident is, you know, just what I'm going to call a simple assault, and I'm not downplaying anything. An assault in the barracks, and you report it to your leadership, and then they say, well, that person who did that has a vital job because, you know, they're in ordinance, and we just started a war somewhere. So basically, you need to pretend like it didn't happen. So that was the first encounter with, oh, okay, so they matter more than I do. I I get it. I'm five-eighths of a person. Like, what numbers are we doing here? Because obviously... Um, I volunteered to go on, we were still doing tours in Puerto Rico at the time, Rosie Rhodes, when they were still protesting. And I was told um, there's no way he's sending me because he didn't want any of the other chiefs to think he's sending a girl there just for morale. He was telling me that the only reason I would be sending you there is so that you can pleasure the guys. I was, I mean, the biggest thing for me was I was told I would never get canine if I didn't do certain things. So it became a huge lever of control over any additional schooling or education I wanted. I mean, they control your promotion, they control everything. So the 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 interview where you tell somebody everything, every career goal you have was basically a checklist on ways to manipulate and get to me is what it turned into. So I, I was um, I was pregnant at the time and basically the, the training LPO and the senior chief at the time took me to an abortion clinic and made sure that no pregnant bitches existed in their department. So I don't know wow. what abortion clinic usually allows an LPO to just sign somebody in and then sign them back out. But in a government vehicle, took me down there, like didn't even get to call my husband who was on deployment. Was this facility like attached to the military? Was it, or was it like a private facility? No, this is a clinic out in town. So essentially what you're saying is the issue was so systemic, right? Like the culture was so systemic throughout your chain of command that you essentially had nobody that you could talk to. Was there anybody that you could talk to? Did you have friends that you kind of let in on your story or, you know, can kind of confide in when you were there? Or were you just kind of in your own little bubble with all of this? 
some of it kind of was job specific issues that isolated because we're on shift work. So if you work, I worked second shift a lot, which was um, two in the afternoon until 10 o'clock at night. Um, So that restricts you from seeing people that work normal jobs. So you basically only know the people that are on your shift. And then depending on what kind of systemic stuff's going on, um, there's a lot of alienating. Like if you're friends with that person, you start getting punished, you get shitty patrol jobs, basically like they make you so toxic that you they force to isolate you. So it's just super interesting because I feel like I'm trying to understand different areas of the military, mm-hmm. I guess, because the first person that we had on our podcast, she was part of an air squadron. I don't understand really the the hierarchy there. I don't either. Uh, yeah. So, so for me to talk to an MA about like shift work and stuff, it's completely different from how I, I look at it. How many women were with you at your command and how many people were at that command? I don't even know. So the interesting thing, and many of the people have been in trauma for a while, you'll notice people can actually get repressive memory. I have a lot of it. I have um, a very hard time remembering a lot of details about when I was stationed in Charleston. I basically blocked it all out. I can barely read rank on a uniform. It's all gone. Like when I go to Pentagon appointments nowadays, and I'm looking at some guy with a whole bunch of gold stripes on his sleeve. I know you mean something to somebody, but to me, you're basically on an individual audition. I have no idea and I don't care until I've actually met you. Like that's the damage that this systemic behavior does is it erodes respect. Like I don't give a shit what's on your uniform anymore because have you ever laid under somebody who has master chief anchor and stars and he's grunting over you? Like that's the memory I have of a master chief. So for anybody in the military that's in the chief's mess, that's the legacy you guys are protecting. Right. And it's just a blanket statement essentially at this point because that is your personal experience with that rank. It sounds like it's something that was not just a one-time occurrence. It was something that you dealt with for for you to feel this way that when every time you look at did you I mean, did you have any good did you have any good mentors that were in the chief's mess that maybe like with your time in the Navy that you can kind of relate to better experiences? Um, I mean, so that that mass chief I'm referring to was at my first command. And I mean, I was basically his pets, what we're going to call it for years. So this went on for a long time. Um, I've had some amazing, I had an amazing senior chief on my ship, old salty motherfucker. And I'll say his name, Senior Chief Massey. He was equal opportunity asshole. And I appreciated that so much. Like he yelled at me for parking and chief's parking and I deserved it. <laughs> but nobody else would ever fuck with any of his people either. You know what I mean? Like he, you do not touch any of the MAs that are part of his team. But that was the command you want. Like, yeah, hold me accountable when I fuck up. But when something's wrong, I know that that old crotchety fuck had my back. Right. You're protected. Solid leadership. You know, that's all we want is equal opportunity asshole. Don't make it different. You know, I'm going to take it there. Would you consider your first command almost the way I'm, I'm interpreting this? It almost sounds like a fucking human trafficking kind of situation. It it sounds like you're just kind of, you're there for whatever the higher ranking people need. It's definitely, you're not wrong. Oh my God. New person came into the chain of command. Some people read in as other people's graduated out and transferred. It's absolutely true. Is this something that has ever been reported or is this, is this just like a dirty little secret of the military that is within Charleston or is this something that has been reported and just nothing I mean, we've done? Caught group, we've caught th- things like that in the military before. I mean, we just caught a whole bunch of guys in Bahrain doing something similar, only actual human trafficking, not, you know, supplying your own stock. It's basically what they're doing in Charleston. But I mean, in general, it's not uncommon. 
they literally own you. I mean, I was denied medical treatment. I almost went blind. I had metal splinters in my eye. And for three days, they kept putting me on post with one eye swollen shut. Got so bad, I actually went to a civilian emergency room because they wouldn't allow me to go to medical treatment. And they said that if I had waited another day, I would be blind in that eye because it started rusting. Because they treat you like just a number. It's just a punishment, but that's also how you like manipulate people. It is not hard to break somebody down when you start denying certain things. I mean, you don't have to. I was armed. You can get raped while being armed. So they basically kind of make a point to let you know that regardless of anything that you have to defend yourself, they're still going to tear you down like as much as they can. Yeah. And they, I mean, they would prove it repeatedly. Did it start with like subtleties for you or was it just like zero to 60 when you got to the command? It probably went zero to 30 and then just a couple unfortunate events all happened close together that definitely just made it a a perfect scenario. Yeah. So you knew that it was like a, that it was an unhealthy environment when you got there. Like there was, there were obviously already signs throughout your command that you were like, okay, this may pose a problem or a threat to me. It uncovered itself literally within one day. All of a sudden, the entire curtain was just ripped down. Okay. Okay. Let me ask you, how old were you when you joined? I was 22 by the time I got went to boot camp. So I was actually an older joint. Okay. So you were, but you were still younger. And I mean, we just, so Lucky and I spoke about this on our last episode that your brain is still like, Oh, in the yeah. process of developing. So you're you're still, you're going through this stuff and you are not even fully processing what is happening. No, because you also don't know what's legal and what's not. You know what I mean? Like in boot camp, they teach you that an E6 is basically like, you know, a higher deity. And if you meet somebody who's an actual officer, you're like, oh my, you're wowed. So thinking to tell somebody, shut the fuck up, I'm not going to an abortion clinic with you, didn't really cross my mind. When there's six dudes in a room telling you what's going to happen to you, it didn't really seem that democratic at the time. So you're kind of just exposed to this entire hierarchy that you've been completely browbeaten into believing. And then it's like, hold on, let me look at the reg real quick. Wasn't really an option. I was going to say, I know from personal experience, when I talk to anybody who has never been in the military and they kind of ask me just what kind of bad experiences I've had or whatever, and when I, when I start telling them, I never go into full detail, but when I start telling them, they're like, why didn't you just leave? And I don't think people understand you can't just leave. That's you signed. Yeah, you can't resign a commission. Enlisted is even worse. You were literally in there. You're riding that wave, like it or not. So when people go UA, it's we're a voluntary force. When somebody goes UA, you bet your ass there was something wrong especially if their own family doesn't know where they are. This is not Vietnam. I'm not not knocking the Vietnam guys, but we're we're all volunteered to be there. So when I'm leaving, it had to be really bad for me to leave. But we also don't want to leave. Nobody wants that shame either. We could, yeah. I mean, I could have walked off that base and gone back to Florida, but then what? Then I went UA. Like that 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 fear of that. It just poses a whole nother list of things that you have to think about and and repercussions. and The Gilded Page, honestly, is patriotism because we all showed up and wanted to be there. And then we basically feel like we have buyer's remorse because we start thinking the price is too high. And then you start wondering, well, maybe I'm not mentally tough enough or maybe, maybe it's me. And you start thinking that you are the problem because, well, there are other people who made it through. Why can't I? And in reality... 
and anybody listening to this that has survived this, you are the toughest bitches out there. And I'm that's not gender specific. Somebody should think about living in such hostile environment and literally still showing up every day. What's even worse is when you're doing that, like the, the people doing it downrange, you're on a pump in the desert and you're going through that. That's stressful environment. Yeah, because then you, you, only you, can't the even, you can't even go home. It's like working at Walmart, getting abused at Walmart, and then having to go and sleep in the closet. Like you can't mm-hmm. leave. You can't escape these people. It's the same on a ship. People, people are like, well, yeah, wh- how, why didn't you get away from it? Why didn't you? Why didn't you report it? And it's like, I'm go. on deployment in the middle of the ocean. Yep. If I say something, everybody's going to know about it. That whole concept is is completely un- like unreachable to them. They can't comprehend that they can't blow off their steam or kind of get advice from people off of it, you know, who are not involved with it because you are so stuck. And the threats are real. I mean, people saying you'll go missing underway, killed by friendly fire, shot by another police officer, like those are all really veiled threats. But if you make waves, like it's not hard to believe that they actually would seeing the other things they're capable of. And I almost wonder, how do they find, because they are essentially grooming these people who are making rank to behave the way that they are behaving and to treat people the way they treat people. So how do you, how do you almost think that they find or manipulate or whatever the people who are going up in ranks to follow suit and do exactly what they're doing too. You put them in a compromising situation and then under our, under UCMJ, it's an accessory after the fact. If they didn't report, then all of a sudden they're guilty by association anyway. And then you start manipulating the person. Just one time they don't say something and then they start fear, fearing for their job. I mean, I literally had in, in Mayport, I had several chiefs and a master chief trying to get this civilian security officer off of all of our girls' backs. Like, I wasn't the only one. And, I mean, that guy sank careers. Nobody did anything. The XO and the CEO of the base, when my working dog got put down in Mayport, I was out of the Navy a little over 30 days after that day. I absolutely lost my shit. And I told, I had to report it to the Master Chief. We were on our third IG investigation for one security officer, and he was still working there. And I told them, because the press was coming for the working dog retirement, I told them, if that motherfucker's at the retirement... You bet your fucking ass. I'm going to make a goddamn scene. Wait, so they like put your working dog down? My working dog um, had to be put down for, for medical reasons. But my security officer, because I worked for him, tried to mark me UA that day and tried to bring me up on, you know, imaginary charges because that's what they like doing. So I was marked UA while I was at the base veterinary clinic with the entire canine of the entire southeastern United States putting a working dog down. So I lost my shit on him and told the entire leadership that for the memorial, he better not be there or it would be a scandal. Did he show up? Escorted by the CO standing in the back corner and the picture, uh, I have a picture of the funeral where I'm holding the triangular flag and the CMC is next to me and the XO is behind me. So I'm being boxed in to be chaperoned as well. So I was definitely supervised because I had my walking papers at that point, like everything. It was, it was on. I had nothing left. What do you mean by walking papers? What does that mean? When that dog got put down and they brought, tried to bring me up on UA charges and like my master chief and my, my chief and everybody, like nobody could help me. They're like that. The guy's nuts. Like he's just has, has it out for you. That, that's when the chief basically said, I can end your second med board now. Like I can write you out now and save you all of this because I don't think you'll make it. 
What do you think would have happened if one person hadn't had your back or had your best interest? Like, because I'm I'm always one of those people, and I know I shouldn't be, but I'm always wondering, like, what if this person hadn't helped me, or what if this hadn't happened? Like, where would I be? Because obviously, it sounds like you were in a downward spiral with everything that was going on with you. Oh, at that point, I was definitely the queen of self-medicating. I was literally already on my second divorce in five years. Like it was as as dysfunctional as you can make it because it was just like, it was just sustained after sustained trauma. Like I just couldn't catch a break. I was definitely in Charleston. I was suicidal for sure. In the end, I had brought the CMC of the base, voice threatening voicemails from that master chief that was keeping me as his pet. And the CMC deleted the the voicemails and said, you know, you should know better than to mess with the chief's mess. But he knew I was breaking, so I had to phone muster for the last three months, and that definitely saved me. Was this something, did you talk to your family or no. friends that were outside of the military about this? No, because they, I mean, it's, um, first of all, when you're younger and back then there was not a lot of conversation or exposure to even trauma or PTSD treatment. So it was honestly undiagnosed until like 2012. Let's put, like, I didn't even know I had MST. You know, I really like no fucking clue that half that shit wasn't borderline illegal or like really fucking illegal. And then, you know, so that, that, that forced abortion in the beginning, definitely like the mental manipulation that goes with that of you couldn't protect your child, you know, that there's a lot of harsh things that were said. So it's just a way to fuck with people that really just breaks them down to the point where they have nothing left. I I had too much shame and had too much damage at the time to even ask people for help because I didn't know what to ask for. So it's, I mean, it's hard for people even in the middle of it to articulate what they want because they don't, you know, it's almost like a... A rabbit cornered, you know, something's got to give. You just don't know what. Go There's on, silver go lining for everything. Right. So talk about it. So the silver lining from all of these ugly stories, you'll see a, a common thread. So in Charleston, my first working dog breakdown, um, since they wouldn't allow me to go canine, took a child from me literally because of it and all those things. There was a dog named Ben stationed there who came from Puerto Rico. And they wouldn't even let me near Ben, wouldn't let me near Canine. Fast forward a couple of years, I'm in Mayport, and this dog is coming to Mayport to retire, and his name is Ben from Charleston. And the guys in Mayport at the kennel were some of my biggest allies, so the people that helped me the most. And they gave me that dog. He retired with me. I basically got out of the Navy after that dog was put down. Like, that was my final release. And even though Charleston said I wouldn't ever get Canine, I literally took the entire industry. I'm I've had my hands in every cookie jar in the canine industry. I've done more and worked with more people than I ever would have in uniform. I've got to work with special operations guys I also wouldn't have done in the Navy. I have one of the guys from Charleston that was my closest friend coming to get a dog from me. And I've had a guy that I was stationed with in Mayport already get a dog from me. So it's basically my big fat fuck you love letter. To the Navy. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to go, I want to kind of dive into this. Your organization, Leashes mm-hmm. of Valor, I'm super curious about it. I did look up the website a little bit, but I kind of want to give you your own voice on this. I want you to explain what exactly it is. But before you do, I want to know how this idea sparked and who the two individuals are that uh, went into business <laughs> with you on this. So if you could just kind of let's start from the beginning. Like, How did this idea arise and then go from there? Go back to Mayport. One of my best friends was Steve. He was a canine guy who got me that dog. Then I get out of the Navy. I have a midlife crisis. I go to hair school. Let's just say for my personality and my trauma and all my physical injuries, that is the worst job in the world. Anyway, my husband deploys 
I go to Syracuse and end up at Syracuse University because I can't get a job as a hairdresser. And at Syracuse is where I meet Student Veterans Club. That was my turning point for me to really get my shit together. Until then, I was just floating around this broken, substance abusing military spouse. I met other veterans. I finally actually started connecting with veterans again because before then I wanted nothing to do with that. And one of the girls was getting a service dog. And I'm like, a what? Service dog? Oh, I didn't know about that. What is that? I like dogs. So basically I go study abroad and I send my husband to get a service dog from this organization because he needed one for his own TBI and PTSD stuff. While I'm at Syracuse and my husband is getting that dog, uh, my friend Steve from Mayport is killed in a car accident. So the whole canine Mayport crew um, has a little mini reunion through grief. Um, So the whole canine thing came full circle and I actually changed my degree field from library and information science to public administration and policy, specifically focusing on working dogs and service dog policy. So I went the nerd route and then I worked for some of the largest organizations in the country after I left Syracuse. But I realized that veterans were being treated as a number. And when you're a veteran yourself, I saw their there was a big disconnect, especially when it needs to be a one-on-one approach. I mean, PTSD, trauma, all of that is a very, it's, everybody's DNA is different. Everybody's reaction to trauma is different. So you can't just make this cookie cutter approach. And that basically through that and through lack of quality in the industry is how Leashes of Valor came about. And we are, it's my husband, Matt, who is the canine trainer, Jason, who is um, a retired Marine. He is the CEO. He also, they, we all got service dogs from the same organization, and then left that organization to found this. Okay, so let me, let's talk about the process. What's the process for getting a dog through your organization? So through our organization, it's a little bit like Match.com. It's a very long application, meaning page length. It's about 19 pages. And I need to know if you're doing long walks on the beach or if you're Netflixing all day, because I need to give you a dog that's matched to your lifestyle. You're going to spend more time with that creature than you would with anybody else in your family. Um application process. So we ask for that. And then we start interviewing the person if they meet the minimum criteria of post 9-11, ideally honorable discharge, but we will obviously entertain any conversation because I know people have been kicked out for things that were just untreated. And then anger management. So people who have active case files of any kind of physical abuse or anger management issues, we usually also will not take you in the program at that time because it's just a risk to the dog. And then we work with the person. So we either have a dog in the pipeline that suits that person's lifestyle, or we have to look for a dog for that person. So people who have small children, you know, I need to make sure the dog is good with smaller children. If you have somebody who has a prosthetic or a wheelchair, they need to be good around those kind of assistive devices. If you're in an office job or if you're a delivery driver, dog can't get car sick. Like there's all these crazy things you have to make sure um, all mesh together. And then we actually talk to your mental health practitioner or your family members to find out your actual triggers. And those are self-soothing behaviors, meaning when people start getting anxiety, some will twist their ring finger or twirl their hair, guys stroke their beard. It's like when a child sucks their thumb, only it's the adult version. You're starting to soothe yourself because you feel anxiety coming on. We train the dog to interrupt that behavior to bring your attention to it. And that gives you that, what we call a fake smoke break. It gives you that, I need to take the dog out for a minute. And that gives you those five minutes to get out of whatever situation you're in and to recalibrate. The other things the dogs are trained on is nightmare interruption. Some people are more vocal in their nightmares, others thrash. So the dog will either like slowly put pressure on you like a weighted blanket or tap you and lick you to to bring you back to reality and present time. They can do medication retrieval. They can do light switches. 
We do not do protection work. It is absolutely illegal. And it is not helpful for trauma people to have a protection dog as a service dog. Right, because they can obviously, dogs can obviously read and pick up, as you were saying, on our anxiety. So if they were to read into that when we're in a, a public place, that could pose some some issues for the people that are around us, you know? I was going to ask that just because you're, you had mentioned your husband was a trainer for military working dogs. So I wondered... I have to make a correction there. So he was a yeah. postmate in the Navy, actually. He's not a oh. military working dog trainer. He, oh, okay. Um, he went to PTSD service dog training school. So... We oh, only okay. we do not do bite, bite work at all. Okay, cool. So he actually went through the training. Was this after you decided you wanted to make this nonprofit? Uh, yes. Okay, and how did so, you go about picking the training that you would that he would go go through? And where are you guys based out of? The farm is what we refer to is out of um, Milford, Virginia, which is right by Fort AP Hill. For anybody else, that's a little bit by Richmond and Fredericksburg on the ninety five corridor. Um, we do take veterans from all over the country and. Selection for training. So honestly, since we worked at other organizations, we did get a lot of trial by error. We got to learn a lot of lessons, um, things to do, things not to do. And through that, also in the industry, just learning what are the good schools? Where did the good people go to school? And um, spent spent quite a bit of money on some good schools. One of them is, is This Able Veteran. They're out of Illinois, I believe. They also have a serve dog program for men and women. Also highly recommended. But we sent them there for the PTSD and the alert training school, our trainers. And then our other trainer, Julie, who's a military spouse, she also went to a school in Texas to do just basic like puppy behavioralism and um, other things because we work with shelter dogs and sometimes you got to fix old quirks. I want to ask also, because I know that it's always kind of difficult to differentiate between what is the difference between a service dog, a therapy dog and um, an emotional support dog, because I know that it's people get very confused with what those things are. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for asking that. And yes, so therapy dogs is what you usually see in hospitals. They go visit, you know, kids in the cancer ward and um, Walter Reed has them too. Therapy dogs works for other people. They do not have public access rights. That person's usually donating their time and their dog's time and has gone through rigorous training to go visit at hospitals. But that's all they do. They're there to make people happy. Emotional support animal is something a doctor can prescribe to you. And that means that whatever animal you choose that makes you happy, ideally cat or dog, it is there to just give you emotional support. Their mere existence is making you happy. Petting them lowers your blood pressure, all of those things. Emotional support is all they do. There's no training required. There's nothing wrong with having those dogs. They have tremendous value. But the difference between them and service dogs is service dogs are going go through rigorous training, meaning you can trust them to be around children, or you should. You can leave them in a restaurant on the floor and they will not eat off the floor. They will not defecate on things. I mean, it's it's rigorous training. And then they're also trained for that specific disability. So for vision impairment, these dogs are really trained to not walk that person into traffic. It's a huge, like it's a huge life or death responsibility, some of these dogs. Same with diabetic alert. Like if blood sugar spikes, if you're relying on that dog to tell you, like if that dog misses the signal, it's not going to go well. So that's why people are so adamant about trained versus untrained, because untrained can be reactive to trained dogs and then you have drama. That's basically it in a nutshell. Like no, 
no other fight really exists. That's what it boils down to, that public access rights are only for service dogs for the reason that they have specific training. Emotional support dogs are what they are because they're not required to have any kind of training. Their existence is what does the job. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just dogs and horses that can be service animals, correct? Yes, miniature horses. And um, I think they removed it again. I'm not sure. But their longevity is basically why miniature horses are used for some things because they live 20 years, some of them. When you spend that much money, and I mean, some of these service dogs are twenty five to $70,000 and wow. their lifespan is eight years. Like that's, that's a lot of money. So if you're vision impaired, for example, or need a severe mobility dog, like Great Danes also don't have a long lifespan. You're better off with a miniature horse if you can do it. So how do you go about selecting your dogs? Do you have do you have access to different facilities that give you your dogs? Do you have kind of the pick of what you want? How does that work? Where do you find them? Um, so we have one breeder in Texas that donates us a lot of dogs. Um, he is a retired army tanker. He does hero Labradors. Uh, they donate to several organizations, actually, so not just us. And that's just your basic white lab puppy, vanilla, generic dog. They're fantastic temperament. Um, and they have really good health. So hips and eyes and all those things. And that's what we look for. We don't pay for dogs. Like that's the one thing we're adamant about. And then with shelters, we have good relationships with some shelters, but some rescues also don't believe dogs should work. We've run into that. They will not give us dogs because they don't believe dogs should have jobs. Um, we have organizations that are very well intending and fail to disclose certain personality issues with dogs. So they'll tell us this dog is going to be great and, you know, something spider monkeys out of the back of the vehicle. So, it, you know, it can sometimes be difficult and very time consuming. So, I mean, we have do f- a few good relationships that are reliable, but other than that, it's definitely picking through a lot of love letters to find something decent. So are there breeds that you don't work with or that don't make good service dogs? Or is this kind of... You know, like one, I have two dogs and I have a blue healer who she is a working dog. And um, people always ask me if I've like taken her to training. They're like, she's so smart, like, you know, things like that. And then I have a rescue who he is mixed with American Staffordshire Terrier. And people are like, don't bring him around kids. He's probably terrible. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, is it, is, is that just, you know, like people discriminate against my dogs or is this like a, is there anything that's true with these allegations? Um, I mean, so there's, there's definitely something we said for the nature and instinct of dogs, but it's absolutely the handler's responsibility. So pit bulls are, are only dangerous because somebody mismanaged the dog. So each, each dog deserves an individual audition or is the responsibility of that handler. We do not do pit bulls for the reason that, A, it's a stereotype, and I don't need a veteran with PTSD walking around with a stereotype. That doesn't help. The other thing, housing. So if people are in rentals or subdivisions, you know, they get a lot of other problems. Even though it's a service dog, there's an additional burden of proof, and I just don't want people to have to put their their crap out there. So I'm just not going to give them a dog that's going to cause additional paperwork. Other than that, we go with breeds that are a certain size, obviously. So about 25 inches shoulder height when they're fully grown, if they can help with, with mobility. Toy breeds, not ideal because, well, there's a lot of prejudice there too. Hunting breeds sometimes are too neurotic, but honestly, it's it's really the individual dog if they're food motivated for us and how their temperament is. So if they're not reactive or too resource guarding and they just have a happy disposition and happy to do pretty much anything for a snack, then that's a dog we can work with. Cool. This is all so interesting. Um, so I have I have a Dalmatian, and I know the stereotype kind of surrounding that breed, and 
I mean, anybody who meets my dog, they they make it a point to kind of bring up that conversation. Like every Dalmatian <laughs> I've ever met is, you know, has been neurotic or has been temperamental or not good with kids. And and I, t- I totally understand, like, a- as an organization, like having to pick a specific breed, not because of what you think of the dog, but because what anybody who comes into contact with that dog will think of that dog that could potentially raise the anxiety of the person with that dog, and which causes a whole other kind of list of issues. Um, so I totally understand that. Um, what about if a person has a dog already and it's it's a puppy or something and they're like, yeah, you know, I looked up your website. I, you know, just picked, you know, a lab out of a litter from this, you know, organization. I'm paying for it. Is there any way that you could do a an interview, I guess, with that dog and see if there's the potential that this dog could be um, a service dog for me? Is there an age that you say is the cutoff for being trained for this? I mean, so we don't take owner dogs for the simple reason that you would have to have this following conversation with them. Not all kids go to college. Meaning not all dogs, even though they're super cute and you think your baby is the smartest baby in the stall, doesn't mean they're necessarily cut out for service dog work. Doesn't mean they provide an amazing service to you at home, but if they can't handle sliding glass doors, for example, some dogs pancake on shiny floors. Like it could be little things like that. So if you're going to start with a young dog, you have to get them exposure at a young age to all kinds of things. It's, I mean, really, if you want to look at how they train special operations dog, basically mimic that. You want the dog exposed to everything so that when you actually need that dog, they don't, they don't freeze or freak out. So that's really what we look for in dogs. When it comes to age, it's really just an investment. So if you're spending a lot of money on getting a dog trained, don't train an eight-year-old dog. We try not to really put a lot of big expectations on actual training and task training until they're about eight months. Anything before then is like, you know, trying to trying to teach an infant the alphabet. You know, they're just their attention span's not there and they just can't absorb everything. So that's why young dogs, you're just kind of feeding this thing and you can't do anything with it except for like take it to, I don't know, the the park or something every once in a while until they're about eight months old. But it's hard for people that have already an emotional attachment to their dog and then they want it to be a service dog and either the dog's not cut out for it or they don't have the emotional capacity to do it themselves. And not a lot of organizations take on an outside dog because it's a lot of responsibility and you have to take it away from that person and nobody wants that. How long does it take to train a service dog? So a lot of that will vary with what pre-work has been done, meaning what the dog does and doesn't need to be worked through. So we've taken a couple of washout dogs from other organizations. Basically, they were fostered and they said the dog was dog reactive, meaning constantly barks, lunges toward other dogs, not necessarily aggressively, but they couldn't get it under control. We were able to turn a dog around in three months after that. We got the dog and then we graduated it three months later working through those problems. But a lot of pre-work had been done. Dogs I take from puppy, I try not to graduate until 16 to 18 months just because I want to get through their toddler behavior before I graduate them because they can still be a pain in the ass. So are these dogs only having contact with the trainers for that amount of time and they and they aren't around the person who will ultimately, you know, be having this dog as their service animal? Or um, are they around them and getting, you know, like comfortable and acquainted and all of that? Um, so the vet doesn't know what dog they're getting until the day they get the dog. They don't get to choose the name or the dog. We choose all of that. I'm on my third marriage. So let's just say we're not always the best at picking our own partners. So, (laughs) 
We reserve the right to pair you with the dog we find most appropriate for you. We do have guys that are applicants that are currently in our foster program. They are not fostering their own dog and they know that, but they are getting familiar and getting their family familiar with the lifestyle, basically, and also seeing it's, if it's for them. But the, the dogs are fostered and rotated probably every eight weeks, 12 weeks, I think. Honestly, I should probably ask my trainer that. Um, But she does a really good job of rotating them so that, A, the humans don't get too attached and the dogs don't learn just from one household. So we have families with smaller children, larger children, more active, more office work. And the dogs work through all of that. So they have all this exposure. By the time they go to a vet, they've already lived with different style families and gone to wineries and kayaking and whatever things these people do. Is there a process that you guys have that allows you to take a dog back if for any reason, you know, the owner is not a good fit for some reason? Or, you know, what's the process for that? Cold, cold hard truth, I will absolutely take a dog back and I, ha- back and I have done it. The welfare of the dog is also our priority. Um, humans definitely can make conscious choices and some of them make shitty choices. At this organization, at Leashes of Valor, we've only taken back one dog, and it was basically that person just was not ready to have the identity of a veteran with a disability. Like, he struggled going out in public with that dog and acknowledging, because that dog next to you makes it visible to other people that there's something wrong. You are not invincible anymore. People can see there's a dog, meaning it's like a prosthetic for the brain. One way or the other, they know something's up. So if you're not comfortable with what, what is wrong with you, one way or the other, it makes it very hard. And that's what he struggled with. He just wasn't like, he looked like a whole person. There was no physical, visible injuries. Um, so on good days, he could pretend there's nothing wrong. And that dog kind of took that pretending away. So it just wasn't a successful pairing. He wasn't ready. Okay. And then the other question is, do you have any sort of continuing education? Because I know, so I, I worked a lot in the veterinary field, when I got out, it was one of the jobs that I selected. Like how you said you went to hair school. I had a couple different <laughs> like weird things that I did. One was massage therapy. The next thing was vet tech. So um, I worked at a, ho- a hospital that was joined with a doggy daycare and doggy training thing. So what they would do is they would take, there's a stay and train program where you pay for you know us to take on this dog for four weeks. And then after that, they have this kind of continuing education because it's not so much keeping the dog trained as it is keeping the owner trained and understanding what the needs of the dog are in order to keep that dog on track. So do you have like those types of things? Do you have like seminars where people can log into like a a webinar and be able to kind of keep up to date on what they should be doing with the dog that they have to make sure that it's working its best? Um, So one of the things we we do because we're residential program, meaning when the vet gets their dog, they come stay here on property for 16 days. So it's full immersion. So I'm basically graduating a mini dog handler. So when they leave with that manual, they also leave with a lot of the homework and knowledge, how to a maintain what we've taught them. But then they also have basically lifetime access to us. So Justin, who's one of our graduates from Montana, actually has flown back out here to come speak at an event, but then extended a couple of days just to get some refresher training. Um, and we'll bring the guys, and currently it's mainly guys, um, we'll bring them back for whatever they need. So phone consult, video, want to come to the farm? Do you need to come for a whole nother week? Like, absolutely. That's why we started our own is so that we could make sure, like we had suicides among our friends. So this is a really personal journey for us um, to not allow people to fall through the cracks. So we don't, yeah. we don't do, qu- we don't do quantity. We do quality. Meaning when you leave here with a dog, first of all, the dog is bomb proof. 
but also you're, you're leaving with an entire network of resources. So we're not going to leave you hang, hanging when you leave this farm. Very cool. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. I learned a lot. Super excited for you and for your organization. How long has it been? Um, founded Leashes of Valor in 2017. And you're just going full strong. Everything's going great. You've, you're getting the funding that you need. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I should almost not be bragging, but considering the Rona, we're actually doing really, really good. How can anybody who wants to donate or contribute to Leashes of Valor, how can can they make donations? Where do they go? Can we include a link on our Instagram and put you guys out there? Yes, absolutely. So you can find us at leashesofvalor.org online. And you can contact us there. You can make donations there. You can shop in the online shop. Um, we also have an Amazon wish list. So if you prefer not giving money and you want to make sure you're feeding a puppy, send us a bag of dog food. That really makes the world go round for us. Uh, if you want to volunteer or apply for a dog or just get more information, again, go to our website at leashesofvalor.org. And if we're not a right fit for you, we'll still be happy to point you in the right direction and make sure you get the resources you need. Awesome. Thank you so much again for coming on and talking to us about not only your personal experiences with um, what you went through in the Navy, but also talking about Leashes of Valor, because I think it's really important that, you know, sometimes just counseling sessions and going to a psychiatrist doesn't work and having a constant companion. um, I think people don't realize how like therapeutic it really is to have an animal with you and how helpful it could actually be. And for a lot of the, for a lot of us that struggled with the aspect of not having loyalty where we were stationed, um, the loyalty of a dog is, was a really big thing for me, the, just a, a constant. So there's a lot to be said for any kind of resource you use and it doesn't always have to be medication or therapy, but definitely don't go it alone. That's the biggest advice I would give people is don't do it alone. Well, awesome. Thank you. I'm so glad we had you on and were able to talk with you. To those of you listening, if you have any questions regarding the conversation that we had today, feel free to send us an email if you have experiences, again, or resources that we would probably like to talk about on this podcast, as that is one of the things that we would like to shed a light on, is you know resources that may have otherwise not come to light for you. Then definitely just shoot us an email at otdlpodcast at gmail.com email.com. We'd love to hear uh, your feedback and keep this thing rolling. So thanks again for listening in and we will see you next time.